Uh, all righty. Uh, uh, thanks, everybody, for uh, joining us today. Um, next up, we have uh, Clackamas Coot joining us to talk to us about, uh, uh, you know, healthy soil. A lot of people, we've, we've had heard from people about koi, heard from people about cannabis, we've heard from people about all kinds of other things. Uh, and we've heard lots of different speakers talk about combining uh, aquaponic nutrients with their soil systems or uh, use, utilizing them in combination. Um, and uh, it's certainly great to have Coot uh, with us today. Uh, he's certainly uh, a person that I highly uh, look up to and love always uh, having conversations with. I think we have uh, 20 or 30 hours uh, between my podcast and Fumadors together of awesome uh, educational content for people talking about all kinds of great, dispel mainly dispelling myths about silly stuff that people need to know about. Uh, but um, uh, he's a great guy and we love having him on the, on the the as part of this conference and really appreciate him taking the time to, to come out here and speak with us today. So thanks a lot for joining us today, Coop. Uh, you're welcome and thank you for the invitation. And uh, I kind of feel out of place after looking over your, uh, well, not roster, but the subjects. Um, so the only thing I know about fish or let's see i fished for them off of mexico i've had saltwater tanks and as a kid i had some freshwater uh siamese fighting fish you know you get all jacked up on some bad weed and go down to the pet store and get a couple uh siamese fighting fish and you know place pets but anyway you do stuff when you're bored so we didn't have bowling for dollars in those days on tv so Anyway, so my story, I once read on, I think it was Fumes, uh, when it was broadcast, and uh, one of the people in the, the zoo troupe, uh, the chat room, if you will, said that uh, I was boring because I always said the same thing. Well, sit tight, Cupcake, because you're going to get bored again. Um, I've been on this deal for, let's say, 20 years. Not, but it's been perfected, or I think I, I think I've moved the goalpost. And so my whole thing is about building the finest uh, soil amendments we can do using uh, very old systems that go back, you know, 3,500, 4,000 years to China. And they got renamed by the stoners in the 80s in Amsterdam. So all of a sudden the biointensive got renamed Sea of Green. Because um, that's just that has that's a lot more gooey sound than uh, you know biointensive, not biodynamic, biointensive. Basically, where you're pl planting close on center to uh, block out weeds. You know, you know the drill and reduce uh, um, what do you call it uh, evaporation and you know good good water management systems like that. And I and I did that course uh, back in let's see '86. I went to uh, Jevons uh, facility and took the wheat course in uh, biointensive gardening. That's a double dig method. You remember that when that was popular, you know, the five by 20, 100 square foot beds and that kind of thing. And the book that he wrote is titled, I'll get it mangled, but it's got all these words in the title, how to grow more vegetables and fruits in the least amount of property you ever thought possible. Something like that. And uh, anyway, that book's been in publication for a better part of, I think, 45 years. And it's based on Alan Chadwick's work from England back in the first part of the 19th century, or 20th century. But even that then dates back to the uh, 15th century France, where it was called the French uh, intensive technique. And then we can trace it back to China 
about 3,500, maybe 4,000 years. So uh, where you could feed a lot of people in a, in a, a smaller amount of real estate has always been the goal of every, not just a goal, but a responsibility of every kingdom or empire. You've got to feed the people, you know, and uh, you need to be able to do it in it with least amount of, uh, least amount of real estate. But basically, my uh, I found a recipe that dates back to 1938 at Cornell University. There was a symposium, and this emerging thing called horticulture. A lot of things were were uh, cast in stone, if you will. For example, have you ever noticed why a number one pot isn't a gallon, and a number two isn't two gallons? because it was measured that day at the symposium that a number one would hold one shovel full of soil. And we're thinking in gallons, it was practical. So now today, when you go to a professional nursery supply and look at the different products, it will explain what their numbers mean because it's not, you know, that's just one area, I mean, as an example, of why things don't seem to make sense. And uh, some that cater to the cannabis trade tend to put their a number one is a one gallon because they're dealing with a different um, market demographic than someone who's been around the nursery trade 30, 40, 50 years. Because you have a lot of multi-generational operations here in Oregon. I mean, think about it. You've got about a thousand producers that generate about $2 billion a year. I know that's nothing compared to cannabis, but believe me, in the world of agriculture, that's serious money, uh, volume. So, and so my training comes from that, from having owned a uh, nursery, doing uh, Japanese lace maples for uh, landscape architects, you know, for resorts, hotels. And so you have those on your property three, four, five, sometimes six years, depending on the variety. So good management of your soil. First, you got to start with good soil. I know this isn't popular, but I firmly believe this. You cannot amend your way to a good garden if you start with crap. Uh, it, it's just not in the cards. Uh, otherwise, we'd be growing in the desert. See what I mean? On a big scale and not selective cropping, you know, with uh, pinpoint, uh, what do you call it? Uh, not drip system, but irrigation, that kind of thing. See, and that's another thing. I came out of the produce sector, the wholesale produce sector. I walked more farms than I could even begin to try to count. And I was involved when the transition, when uh, things were moving from conventional to transitional and finally organic. I mean, this isn't having large volumes of organic produce is something relatively new, like in the last 20, 25 years, if that. And um, anyway, you get the idea. I mean, so I had a lot of that information and I took and applied it to a potting soil. And so the so-called, I, I didn't name it, someone did on a bulletin board, the, the predates social media. I think it was, uh, it was either uh, Grass City or IC Mag, Nipsey Nirvana's a little deal. And um, somebody called it Coots Mix. So anyway, basically it's based on the Cornell mix of 1938. And just to briefly run it through, it's three parts. You have your 
bioactive material, compost, or I prefer vermicompost, which more often than not is compo compost that's gone through the vermiculture process. So it's value-added compost. How's that? We use modern terms here. And then uh, one third of sphagnum peat moss, not peat moss, but sphagnum. To some of you, maybe have to ask your dad or big brother or something. In the old days, there was tops and shake. Okay, so sphagnum's tops and peat moss is shake, and it's no more complicated than that. And what, what uh, sphagnum gives you is structure, which gives you airflow and water flow into the root zone. And so it creates an aerobic environment because what we're trying to achieve here is high levels of microbes. We don't get them out of bottles. We, we start with good material and build on that. And then the other component, of course, is aeration. Now, how you get there, I don't want to get involved now. It's too stupid a conversation. Perlite's probably the, the least uh, expensive. You can buy that in four cubic put bags at Home Depot for under $20. So don't go to a grocery store and get it. It's not special, it's just perlite. And uh, if you wanna find the producer in your area, I'm not joking, there's actually an organization called the Perlite Institute. That's true story. And they'll have all the uh, manufacturers and they don't manufacture for nurseries. That, that's the, one of the smallest market things of perlites it's real big in uh concrete and i'm not a concrete person but i know that it's used like for tilt-ups it's added to the recipe and uh, there's some i don't know all the reasons why but that's where the uh, the, the focus is so if you wouldn't believe how many perlite manufacturers there are around the country it's kind of uh really <laughs> you know and of course, Oregon being a big uh, nursery state, we have one here. I uh, don't remember the name now. Pyramid Perlite? It doesn't matter. They're all, it's, it's all the same deal. It's popcorn. It's rock popcorn. I prefer, I, I prefer pumice, uh, which is also known as uh, volcanic glass. It's completely inert. It does not go anywhere. You know, it's there for in perpetuity. And it has a lot of holes, which gives you sequestering, you know, nutrient sequestration. And um, if you can't get pumice in some parts of the country, they'll sell its cousin called scoria. And it's sold under the uh, generic name of uh, lava rock. That's what's in those uh, barbecues, the rock that they put in there is scoria, and sometimes at landscape yards. Especially in Southern California, they use it to you put on your flower beds. Anyway, so you could use scoria, and that's uh, again, it's inert. It has the uh, all the holes, and it gives you that aeration. It's going to build up the aerobic profile of your soil, and that's in my experience and experience of other organic uh, soil people. That's that's what gives you the big yields, whether it's flowers, whether it's fruit whatever it is, is good a soil that's alive and it's aerobic. There's a lot of air moving through there. That's what earthworms do. They create air passages uh, as they move through the, through the soil. 
pulling up minerals from the deep subsoil, a subroot, and, and deposit it on top. So you see that cycle, that life cycle, and the more that we can uh, copy that, if you will, to to whatever however you're setting your uh, gardens up. Um, that's why I use smart pots. Again, I want that aeration. I want that airflow in and out of that soil mass. And I want to, I want those when I'm doing uh, worm castings because it's an aerobic process. The more oxygen we can get in there, the better results we're going to have. I hope that makes sense. And then uh, my amendments, I know, are, are, uh, I, I don't want to get into that one, but they're, they're minimal. Um, the salt leads the way, um, you know, in this very core, soil biologists will tell you that soil is simply, at its most basic definition, is rotted animal and plant material and shattered rock. Where'd the shattered rock come from? Lichen. What's lichen? A combination of fungi and bacteria colonies that over billions of years pull off sheets of the layer, right? And over billions of years, that's how soil uh, eventually became, as we know it today. And um, I'm a minimalist. I don't use, I use maybe uh, more as a, because I think maybe I have to, I add a, a calcium carbonate and which is usually limestone or sometimes I buy the uh, oyster shell because it's cheaper and it sounds more cool. Oh no, I use oyster shell. And so, but that's all limestone is oyster shells, or excuse me, seashells. So it's really like a difference without a distinction. And then I use uh, kelp meal, raw kelp meal that's been dried and then cut to a consistent size by, uh, there's only two big companies in the world. One's in Norway and that's a maxi crop. And then the other one is in uh, uh, Nova Scotia, and that's uh, Acadian sea plants. Everybody else buys theirs, rebrands it. You know, it's, you have to have a license. To, you can't just go buy a trawler and go out into the ocean and start yanking. I guess you could, but it, I mean, the cost would be, what are you gonna do with it? You can't sell it. But anyway, and then uh, my favorite one, and uh, actually there's two and they're both from India. Uh, Karanja, also known as Pangamia, that's a legume. So think of uh, alfalfa and steroids. And then the other one is neem meal, which is the, uh, think of olive uh, and you're taking the kernel and you press the oil. Anytime we do that, the resulting material is called a meal or a cake. So the only exception to that is alfalfa, but like cottonseed meal, that's, cotton seeds that had the oil pressed out for whatever reason, some, you know, uh, money thing. And what's left over then is cake or meal. It, it can be used as a alfalfa, excuse me, as a livestock feed. And some people might, I, I wouldn't, but some people would add it to, to their soil mix, but that's where you get flaxseed meal and all those, all those other things that we like using, right? Soybean meal, those are all, sometimes called defatted uh, soybeans. Uh, that means that the oil was pressed out of it. So now it's a, a thing and uh, we can eat, feed that to worms. We can put it, you know, there's a lot of ways to use it without directing. If you don't want to use it in your soil, you can certainly use it in the compost 
a thermophilic compost. And, uh, and can I explain composting for a minute? Because there's so much mis misinformation. <clears throat> compost as we know it today is a relatively new phenomenon. It only dates back about 91, 92 years, the late 20s in Germany. And the group that uh, the biodynamic, who they based their uh, practices on the writings of Rudolf Steiner. Okay, and um, anyway, so we now refer to it as thermophilic because there's a temperature thing involved, and that's to kill uh, pathogenic bacteria and fungi. And so that's taken up to 140. But that heat, does, it does nothing. And I mean nothing as far as actually breaking the material down. You can't even cook an egg at 140, all right? So it's a mixture and you make it like lasagna. You have carbon, which is think brown, and some nitrogen, think green. And you can use anything, comfrey, stinging nettles, alfalfa meal, it doesn't matter. The brown leaves, straw, not hay, straw, which is the stalks of grains, barley, wheat, rye. And that then, and this is a, so that it's taken up to 140 only for one reason, and that's to comply with practices and in some cases state requirements that you take it up that high to get rid of pathogens, but it's not composting anything. So it's microbes that will break this down. And when we get down below 100 Fahrenheit, somebody else can do the arithmetic. I don't know what that means in terms of centigrade. Now we're in the mesophilic, and that's the range between about 99 to about 68, so about 30, 31 degrees. And that's the mesophilic. Now we destroyed the microbes, that was the whole purpose of the thermophilic cycle, right? So now we need to rebuild those colony and that's where we add things that uh, reintroduce not only microbes, but micro foods. And it raises the nutrient profile of that compost. And that's, we could get into a whole discussion, but those are all the things, the meals that we just mentioned, those would be things that you would add. Because if you add them at the front, then you destroyed all of the, 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 the phytohormones, the, the compounds, right? Because those are all just simple hydrocarbons. So you need to add them at a temperature that they're not going to deconstruct. And that's why you uh, wait till you get down below 100 Fahrenheit. And that takes a long time. I mean, for good quality compost, you've got to figure eight, nine months of what most people call curing. But that's what it is, is the mesophilic. Now, what I do at that point is then I take that material and put it into the vermiculture and uh, start doing some other things with it. And then it runs through the worms uh, cycle. And there you're talking another year or so. Uh, this is an instant result, so it's not very popular. Um, it's, I'll tell you where it's popular with are what we call uh, market producers, the ones, the folks that do the farmer's markets. It used to be called truck farming at one point, but now it's called uh, market producers. Because the, they understand that the better their soil is, the better their fruits and vegetables and increased yields. 
so it is a thing of you know soil building that's why the term is what it is and i know that's not popular because we all want something we just go grab a bottle see it says right here man it's got microbes in it yeah so which ones well i don't know but it's right here on the bottle i mean you could take your fingernail and you know rub it in the soil and stick it in a bottle of water and see look it's got microbes it, and that has absolutely nothing to do with viability or Anyway, whatever so there it is is that simple you know uh build a good soil and the whole focus is on the quality of your compost the rest of it's just so much jibber jabber you know you talk a lot about uh, uh about malted barley as well for providing chitinase and i think a lot of people don't realize that they can get chitinase from things like malted barley and i think that it's mostly coming from insect frass and i wanted you to talk maybe a little bit about that and how there there are other options well, absolutely. And, and I was surprised uh, when I learned that, uh, and that's an important distinction, not chitin, chitinase. And chitin is a polysaccharide. It's an acetyl form of glucosamine. Bacteria cannot deconstruct polysaccharides. But in their feeble attempt, they create an enzyme called chitinase. And plants use chitinase. Plants also create their own chitinase. One of the main defense system in a plant is the chitinase hyphen salicylic acid pathway. Salicylic acid is not unique to this or that plant. It's almost, I, well, I, gotta, I have to exclude uh, desert because I'm not knowledgeable and I have to exclude some tropical plants, but let's talk uh, type two chlorophyll plants, which is a majority of agriculture. Um, anyway, you get the idea. I don't want to get into about orchids because I'll probably mess that one up. But so it's not necessary that you use barley at all. It's an easy way because you're picking up protease, which is going to work. It's a catalyst for. Uh, Protein, urease for urea, phosphatase. What cannabis lover doesn't want to talk about phosphorus? I mean, come on, let's get real here. All right. And uh, you get the idea. And so all these things were encoded by the host plant for a seed. And it's not just barley. I didn't even know about barley when I started uh, my research on this. But I understood that when the seed was germinated, a whole bunch of properties are changed in that uh process enzymes get uh from this to this and the and the seed is provided with is anyone who's ever done any kind of you know planting a seed that seed doesn't need anything for the first what several weeks so it has to have its own defense system so the seed is encoded with all kinds of neat stuff with chitinase being one, because it, what does chitinase do in the soil? Well, one of the things it does, it deconstructs insect eggs. So in a rather existential way, you could say that chitinase is an IPM. I don't know, I'll let others battle that one out. But what I do know is that it increases the uh, bacteria level in uh, worm bins and Bacteria only eat uh, 
one thing, excuse me, worms only eat one thing, and that's bacteria manure, exude, poop, whatever term you want to use. As wonderful as worms are, they lack teeth and they lack a stomach. So they suck up uh, bacteria slime. And in their biology and in their uh, digestive tract, that material is carbonated, meaning that it's coated with a uh, calcium carbonate slime, which is why people who have really good worm castings, you never hear a discussion about pH issues or, you know, any of that silliness. It's, it's taken care of. So it goes back to building a soil the right, you know, the right way the first time. And unfortunately, you're not going to find it in a bag. It's just the minute you put that material in a bag, the clock started clicking. Now imagine it's sitting in a, a parking lot at the grocery store in a pallet out in the sun. And by the time you get it, it's been out there for three weeks. You think there's any biology in that bag? Of course there isn't. You know, I mean, it's a nice thought, but, you know, figure something else out. Make your own. Um, but as far as chitinase, there's a lot of, uh, some of you older guys will remember a product called Kytosan that uh, was sold as a liquid product. Okay. That was simply chitin, the polysaccharide. This is stuff they use uh, for uh, sutures. And they have since the 1880s. It's not a new, uh, you know, thing or something. Um, in fact, Albert Hoffman, the man who discovered LSD-25, uh, that was his doctorate was on. He, he figured out the uh, molecular, uh, not formula, structure of chitin. Because, you know, it was being used by that time in 1922 when he graduated from Cologne. Um, it was also now being started being used uh, for dental. So internal surgery, not just external, uh, but anyway. So chitosan was simply, it would take uh, water and put in uh, this chitin. And uh, the bacteria activity created, guess what? Chitinase. So they'd harvest it and bottle it. I mean... When I read that, I thought, wow, wait a minute. Might be onto something here. So it wasn't until later that, uh, because Oregon has, is one of the largest producers of really top quality barley for, uh, for the uh, brewing sector. They have their big school, uh, agricultural school, Oregon, Oregon State and Corvallis. They have a, a, an online portal called Barley World. And so it's a really comprehensive website of international uh, research and what in the, in the barley sector. So that's where I picked up a lot of the other enzymes because the only ones that matter in the brewing sector is amylase. And unique, all, all seeds create amylase. That's not unique. What's unique about barley and especially among grains it's the only one that creates two forms of amylase, just like the saliva in our mouth, alpha and beta. So, but as far as, which doesn't mean a whole lot in our, in terms of talking about soil or even, 
it's a nice factor, but it's not as, in my opinion, not as important as phosphatase or uh, urease. But uh, the main thing it does, it generates uh, an incredible level of uh, microbial activity, which means more food. And like any organism, more food, then you're going to have more bacteria, which means you're going to have more exudes, which means you're going to have a higher um, and more consistent reproduction rate on your worms. Um, so we had um, <clears throat> another question, actually uh, a follow-up to that. Um, what uh, methods do you prefer for pest management? Oh yeah, this will start a fight. Um, yeah, I, uh, I use uh, Neiman, uh, the virgin stuff, uh, cold-pressed uh, neem oil out of India and uh, cold-pressed uh, Karanja oil. And uh, because it's not a poison, there's uh, they they act as antifeedants. They block reproduction. In fact, some of the uh, compounds out of neem are widely used in China and India as a uh, uh, birth control medicine for both livestock as well as humans. Um, there's uh, yeah, the antifeedant is the big one. So it's, uh, you're not poisoning them if that's, you know, part of somebody's uh, concern. It's not like spraying DDT on it or whatever. And then I use uh, saponins. I prefer using the uh, soap nuts from India because they're 25% saponins. I mean, 250,000 parts per million. It's pretty outrageous. Uh, plus, you can reuse them five or six times, so you're really cost effective. Um, Florida has a lot of soap nut trees that came by Portuguese, dropped them off. I know you're, you're real knowledgeable about plants. I mean, the Portuguese moved more plants around the world than any other uh, culture that I can think of in the last, you know, six, seven hundred years. They're the ones that brought. That's partially how cannabis got spread around the world because it was on the trade ships. So if you, it was part right. of a standard boat repair kit that that in pine trees, uh, yep. for, to making new masts, rope, and sails. In case you got yep. shipwrecked. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I got this got started. I started doing sprouted seeds, and I live close to Bob's Red Mill, which offers a lot of retail products, you know, uh, grains and beans and whatever. Well, they have a lot of it in uh, self-serve uh, bulk. So I'd go there and get like a quarter cup of this and a quarter cup of that, you know. Oh, let me try this, you know. So I got some stuff out of that. What's that old one from uh, Ethiopia? Starts with an S, S-E. It's a seed they make the bread out of. Uh, a really an ancient grain. Uh, yeah, that one. <laughs> Sorry about that. I can't think of the name. Uh, but anyway, I, 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 so I go to the counters, I have 10 or you know, a dozen bags with maybe a quarter cup in each one, and they just kind of look at me like, well, the old guy's lost his mind. And um, Sorghum? No, it's uh, Seth. Yeah, Ethiopian bread uh, grain. Somebody needs it, I can't. I want an iPad, so. but anyway, it's not important. Oh, TEF. That's what I'm thinking of. TEF. T-E-F-F. -F. 
uh, really ancient, ancient grain. So, uh, yeah, but anyway, what I learned though, and I, a lot of legumes, I mean, you can imagine all the beans that they would sell at a place like Bob's Red Mill. What I learned real quickly is it didn't matter. You want to do peas? We can't do split peas, but you know, you get the idea. You want to do garbanzos? Have at it. Then when somebody told me about barley malt, you know, I, I, they got this stuff already made? Yes. I never sprouted another seed. It was over. Now, when you go to a well-equipped uh, uh, homebrew store, they're going to have all kinds of malted grains. Get the one you like. You want to use rye? Use rye. You want to use red wheat, white wheat? You know, you get the idea. It doesn't matter. The only difference is that barley, like I said, contains alpha and beta forms of amylase. I can't see that. I kind of understand what amylase does in a soil. I'm, I can't see where having two is going to make a big difference. But if it does, then there you go. There's your there's your reason for using it. We had a, another question from chat. What's your opinion on lava rock? Oh, that's scoria. Absolutely. It's good stuff. Especially in places like southern, at the southwest, how's that? Many landscape yards that, you know, sell to the, the wholesale trade. I know we got a bunch around here. You take in a bucket, you got to bring your own shovel, but they'll let you out on the pile to fill it up for five bucks or whatever it is, four bucks, whatever. And it doesn't matter. It's going to come in black, red, and kind of a grayish color. Mix and match if you want. Do a confetti thingy. You know, but as far as the color properties, no, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. You know, what, you know what just came back to the market uh, this week? I think I saw the first the thing that was off the market for a bit is a Growstone is back under the brand name Buddy Stone now. I remember Growstone, the silica glass stuff, the glass. Oh, yeah, stone. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, here's the only reason that I don't like perlite. It has nothing to do with its viability. In fact, I'll just agree to, with everybody that's the best goddamn stuff that was ever invented, God damn it. But it also has two properties that suck. One is if you're mixing up, and you've seen my plants, if you're mixing up 600, 800 gallons, that's three or four yards, right? You're gonna use a lot of perlite, aren't you? And that shit moves around. And when it hits the surface, surface, the wind carries it away. It's a pain in the ass. And once you put in pumice or scoria, a lava rock, it's not moving. It's going to stay there, providing you the aeration. That, that was the reason you put it there in the first place. But see, perlite, for a lot of people, they're only using the soil once. They get a bag of some magical stuff, whatever, you know, soil magic. Yeah, that'd be a name, huge soil magic. Um, they don't give a shit. I mean, they're going to run it through uh, some kind of a growth cycle and then flower it, and then boom, you know, you got to have fresh soil. You won't get good results. So they're not dealing with the realities of a long-term no-till situation. Perlite, in my opinion, is the worst. Uh, not because it's not viable, it provides aeration. It just moves around. 
what are some other common myths uh, or, uh, or misunderstandings that people have about other uh, organic inputs? You've worked with a lot of different ones and, and uh, know a lot of different things that are kind of uh, uh, maybe people aren't aware of about certain uh, inputs. Yeah, I just, uh, well, we've talked about this one and this is one of my favorite ones. Okay. Back in the uh, late 1800s in Germany, um, a geologist discovered a deposit of, I'm going to leave that part out for a minute, and his last name was Langbian, and was the practice in that time period up through about pre-World War II, even in this country. That's how we got Leonardite from Dr. Leonard. Um, this material was named Langbianite. Okay, fair enough. Um, a soil chemist would tell you, oh, that's sulfate of potash magnesia. Sulfur, potash, magnesium, right? It's easy enough. Later, big deposits were discovered around the Great Lakes, upper Midwest. And uh, a corporation was formed under Mosaic, which is the one of the larger <coughs> fertilizer companies in the world. <coughs> they set up a sub-organization called KMAG. Now you've discussed KMAG. Uh, the K stands for uh, potash, and then the MAG is magnesium. You notice how sulfur never gets mentioned in this. I always find that fascinating. Okay. So now we got Two names still. We got the Langbianite and oh, three now. We got KMAG and we got the sulfate of potash magnesia. Now, KMAG is a big ass corporation. In fact, they sell it in two forms a powder that is uh, soluble and one that is more rock, like a, a, a salt, you know. Uh, Rock salt, like we put out when it gets uh, snowy and stuff. Fair enough. So KMAG says, huh, you know, we could sell this to these uh, fertilizer packages. Now, I want you to understand something. You can't come up with one name of a fertilizer anywhere in the market. If it's sold at the retail level in a bag and a box, the company with naming that had nothing to do with it. It's all outsourced. Can you imagine what the licensing requirements are to set up a fertilizer factory? So where do you find them? Well, you find them in Oklahoma, you find them in Texas. You, the contractor, ship the boxes that are pre-printed, right? So it can say, I don't want to get into names, but think, think of a name and they had nothing to do with it, okay? So KMAC says, well, We'll release a product and we'll call it SUL hyphen PO hyphen mag, sulpo mag. And they required the packers that the letters showing sulpo mag had to be of a certain percentage larger than the regular text on there. So there were all these requirements. But my God, think how it goose up your NPK numbers on your soil mix, excuse me, on your fertilizer mix if you had you know, these ultra high levels of magnesium and potassium, and we never mentioned sulfur. I'm not sure why that is. 
so it's really important in the soil business to do what's called label building. And the philosophy is that if you get more things listed on that label, that you will have uh, a larger market share. And to a large degree, that's probably true. I've seen products that had all four names on one label. Langbionite, K-Mag, Sulpo-Mag, Sulfate of Potash Magnesia. I mean, I get hysterical sometimes reading labels. One of my favorite products to really bash, because this one deserves it, the product called Turpinator. I can see Arnold now, you know, a weed and plant in one hand and this bottle of a dribble in the other. <clears throat> I don't know. <clears throat> it was at one time $80 a gallon. I mean, it might be more or less. I have no idea. <clears throat> so I'm in the grocery store a few years ago and I'm buying, uh, I like ripping them off for light bulbs because that's a lost leader for them. You know, stick them where you can. And uh, the gentleman behind the counter is helping some uh, new uh, residents on the, the highway of broken dreams. And he's getting them set up for a big, uh, we need the lights, got everything, you know, got that whole drill. So look at this bottle of Turpinator and it has sulfate of potash. Now remember, KMAG is sulfate of potash magnesia, right? Well, adjacent to those deposits, you will find sulfate of potash, which is a standard agricultural product. You can go buy it from any farm store, 12 bucks, maybe $15 for a 50 pound bag, 50 pounds. So I did the calculation because right there's the label that they submitted to USDA about how much of this material is in this jug of water. And best I could come up with was about 90 cents worth of this material. Because that's why they said shake well. Yeah, I guess so. Because neither one of those elements are water soluble, right? Shake well. Two <laughs> words you should always you should always avoid. If you're buying a nutrient and it says shake well. Pull out your phone and start looking up the terms and see what they actually have in it. That's a good point uh, about because you do, you don't see it on uh, on everything, but you do see it on some stuff. Right. I don't care what you do, and I don't care who's making the claim. You cannot turn calcium into water. Calcium is a metallic element. Period. Otherwise, our teeth would fall out. I mean, can you imagine if our skeletal system had, was made of something that could be turned to liquid? And I certainly don't have any confidence that the stoner industry is capable of doing it without a nuclear reactor. I mean, you know, at some point, come on. CalMag lockout? Jesus Christ. Well, don't you know, I just got to put more CalMag on it. That's right. CalMag and uh, what else? I don't know. That'd be something. Speaking of CalMag, we had someone ask about um, green sand. What is your opinion on green sand? This was my standard answer for several years. 
because if you look at the amount of time that it takes to deconstruct uh, green sand, it's close to 10 years. So what I told people is that it is the world's most expensive and enduring aeration material, okay? Because if you put it in your soil, it ain't going anywhere. And uh, that deposit in New Jersey, because a lot of it uh, referred to as New Jersey green sand, that deposit was wiped out in 1890s, all right? So this the stuff I've seen, miraculous. oh, this is out of Brazil, uh-huh. It's green sand. It's like extremely long-term soil building. If you're trying, if you're trying to get those elements in your soil, there's more direct ways <laughs> than green sand. I always tell people it's great for that like bird of paradise that's going to be in your office and get neglected for the next five years, or yeah, your, yeah. Bonsai, your bonsai trees that are going to sit yeah. in that pot for years. Yeah, yeah, it's okay for there, but anywhere yeah. else, it just doesn't dissolve or do anything fast enough yeah. to, to, to be useful. Uh, you see this with some of the silica products as well. Uh, some of them are pretty chunky and granular, and it's like, well, that's cool as a replacement for aeration, like you're saying, but it's certainly not going to uh, add anything anytime soon. It's where you're, you know, and you're a big proponent of this, actually, to, to segue on that is, uh, uh, do you want to tell us a little about aloe? Because you're a huge uh, uh, proponent of aloe. Okay, so let me do the history of aloe because I think that's important. Uh, aloe was one of the earliest plants domesticated by the human race, and it was in Egypt. And as a matter of fact, going to the most ancient of the Egyptian empires, it began being used in the mummification process of corpses. And of course, they didn't have the knowledge and understanding what was going on. But in effect, what it was doing was removing and preventing bacteria from uh, deconstructing the skin before the internal process of mummification. At any event, um, it arrived in India a few centuries later. Now, this is where it got interesting. This is in the pre-Ayurvedic uh, period when our ancestors, excuse me, the Europeans were still running around in loincloths, you know, throwing rocks at each other. India was building magnificent temples and becoming this epicenter of the world for plants. That was the, it still is, the, the epicenter of the uh, trade, uh, spice trade. And then with Northern India, what we today would call uh, Afghanistan, that was your uh, Maharajas. Um, you had the Silk Road going through the north and you had the, so it became a big, that's what plant, humans did, have done for centuries is move plants. And it became, in, it became one of the holy plants of the Ayurvedic, of which Neem is on the top list, by the way. 72% um, of Ayurvedic preparations contain some part of the Neem tree bark, leaves, uh, roots, uh, and the kernel, where we get the oil. Anyway, so uh, aloe vera became widely known for its treatment, it still is. If you went into a drugstore, when, if you had a prescription, or if you went and bought over-the-counter, anything to do with uh, skin issues, acne, uh, a burn, it's gonna contain aloe vera. 
and the big player, every plant produces, excuse me, again, I got to exclude desert plants and I want to stay away from orchids, I'll get into trouble. Plants produce salicylic acid. That's what uh, aspirin's made from. Aspirin is the acetyl form of salicylic acid. Now, had Dr. Bayer known about aloe vera, I'm sure that he would have used aloe vera to make bare aspirin in the 1880s versus willow tree shoots. A lot easier to grow aloe vera. Of course, you probably couldn't do it in Germany, at least commercially. Um, so it, it contains the highest levels of salicylic acid on the planet. And the Bayer Corporation, immediately after World War I, and it, it was this new, the world was moving in a different direction. And agriculture was becoming an international issue. So, aloe vera, he wanted to find new uses of aloe vera because he already had it down. He was making money off selling aspirin, right? And if you're a manufacturer, what do you do? Well, you look for new markets for this thing, this secret that you found. And research started here in Oregon at Oregon State University, which is, uh, we have a school of agriculture there and a school of horticulture. And they began testing this as a rooting agent. And lo and behold, uh, within, started in about 1919, the research finished up in 1922, I think it was. And that gave birth to a product. This is how universities work. Corporations finance the research. Then you take that research and turn it into a product. You sell it long enough to recoup your monies. And then you sell the product for a profit. And that's how the, uh, the first rooting compound of the name of Hormex, H-O-R-M-E-X, that's that whole story. And it's still sold today. If you go to a commercial nursery, not, I'm not talking about a cannabis thing where you got Olivia's and Clonex and all this other silliness. Um, and went to a nursery where they're doing like Monroe Nursery out here is a thousand acres. They do like 10,000 cuts a week. And talk about tough love. They're not doing it like, well, let's put them in trays and we'll put them on, you know, uh, this is really tough love. And hormones or some form of salicylic acid is the rooting deal. Boom, boom, boom. So along about 1932, at Oxford University in England, they discovered that kelp, again, not seaweed extract, that wasn't even invented until 1951. But kelp contained what we now know as IAA, endoacetic acid. You've seen that on rooting products and IBA, endobutric 3 acetic acid. And both of those compounds are found in kelp in high levels, kelp meal. So I came up with a method of getting organic aloe vera gel, which is uh, available from a company called uh, Lily of the Desert, because aloe vera is a lily, not a cacti or a succulent. That might be a succulent, it's not a cacti. And uh, it comes in an organic form. And so the recipe was to take a pint, 16 ounces of this uh, organic gel, dump it into a bowl, mix in a tablespoon or something, 
of kelp meal with a little bit of folic acid from your next guest, Dr. Uh, Foss, uh, BioAg. And boom, you have this incredible rooting compound that costs you about, oh, I don't know, $8 for enough gel to do a thousand plants over the next year. You got to store it in the refrigerator too. So anytime you come up with a product that uh, is going to hurt a commercial aspect of the cannabis, then you have to have the, uh, oh, I don't know what do you call them, the ne'er-do-wells that, you know, come out with the silly ass. The, the better the product is, the more criticism you're going to take. And so that just became, you know, you guys want to play? Sure, here you go. So, uh, I think I outdid them, yeah. Oh, and the other one I want to tell people, when you're looking at materials at the grocery store or whatever, you're gonna see IBA, safe to use, IAA, that's dip and grow is IBA. IAA means endoacetic acid, safe to use, salicylic acid, obviously safe to use. The one that you do not want to use is Na yeah, NAC, naphtha acetic acid. That is a Monsanto pesticide created in 1953. And some jack off figured out in the 60s that you could use it as a rooting compound. And now you find it in products. It should be labeled not safe for food at the very least. Um, Again, I think making your own from the raw materials is the way to go because you pay nothing. I mean, I've seen what packs of Clonex cost. And like I said, you can make 16 ounces for eight bucks. So whatever. <laughs> they have, you used to have my pictures in grocery stores around Portland. I had, you know, a red circle with a slice across the middle. And it said, on my picture, and it said, do not engage this asshole. So, uh. <laughs> um, and people can find a lot of these uh, natural inputs in uh, other places other than grocery stores. I know you've often talked about getting them in the in Chinatown and other places. You want to maybe touch on oh, that? Absolutely. absolutely, yeah. I mean, look, think about this for your commercial listeners. Salicylic acid has been used for a hundred years as a the rooting compound in the commercial horticulture. Uh, wholesale, uh, what do you call? It? Nursery stock sector, okay? Commercial nurseries. A kilo from a company that you know, Phytotechnologies, a kilo is under $50. That'll make 55 gallons of rooting compound. I mean, think about that for a minute. <laughs> and no silliness, we're talking science, just science, science, science. You know, it's, um, I, I I, I laugh at, you know, you want to show me a, a, a product and it's got a cool label. Okay. Wow. We, it'd be like, you know, looking at album covers in the seventies. Well, I really like the album cover. I bet the music's good too. Well, we'll see. You know, and uh, I would say the same thing about materials that the more groovy they want to be, then, you know, walk away. I want plain wrap. I want a white box of blue lettering that says kelp meal. You know, I don't need, a picture of the ocean and, you know, Susie and the dog and walking down the beach and, you know, all moving and grooving and getting hopey and dopey, you know? Absolutely.
Well, <laughs> how can people find out more education from you or uh, other ways to learn more about you? Uh, I know they can definitely check out my channel and Fumador's channel. You've given quite a few hours of talks there. Where else can they find you? I would, you know, I'd rather do this because I'm, uh, you know, really retired and I don't have a lot of, what's the word? Mm. Oh, just leave it at that. I only recommend three books. Okay, here's all you need to know. The first book is called Vermiculture Technologies, written by Clive Edwards, Dr. Clive Edwards, who spent over 65 years as an entomologist. Two PhDs, one for Ox from Oxford University and one from Ohio State. He's the father. He, I just learned he passed away uh, back this last summer. I mean, we wouldn't have vermiculture as we understand it today without his work. That book is the best investment any grower can make. Vermiculture Technology, Dr. Clive Edwards. The next book that I would say is mandatory would be, um, oh, I want to touch on this one before I go. Okay. So I've been, get, got, been getting into a serious, well, for me, serious mycology and doing rooting, uh, recruiting blocks of lion's mane and oysters and what have you. And after you, so even you folks out there that don't want to go through all that, you can buy these kits online and you peel the plastic back and it grows a mushroom. And what you're left with is block of mycelium. And we can take that mycelium and put it into our compost piles after it's gone through its thermophilic cycle, right? And can you imagine the amount of uh, fungi you're introducing into your compost pile with an agricultural waste? So it's gonna help deconstruct the material faster. Uh, having a fungal colony in your compost is gonna attract other fungi. So that's a plus because one of the, not criticism, one of the realities is that both worm bins as well as thermophilic is, are mostly bacteria driven. So that anything we can do to up the levels of fungal colonies is to our, is to our benefit, whether you're talking about beds or container grown plants or what have you. Though I would say that the beds or the containers I use would probably qualify as a bed, wouldn't you? Four yards. <laughs> oh, yeah. There's a lot of there's a lot of so that's two pallets. So, you know. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us. I know uh, we.